So today we're going to conclude our series in Amos. Um, how many of you are, are glad that you had a chance to study an Old Testament minor prophet book? Anybody just say, I'm glad. Good. That's what I like to hear. So how many of you feel like if you had to, you could give a one or two sentence summary of what Amos is about? We got a couple that could. Do I call? Do I dare? No. I want you to think about that because that's why we do this. So it sticks with you so that you be able to remember what this was about. That this, uh, the little tagline was a help to you, the remaining faithful in prosperity, because that's uh, what God's people ultimately did not do. Uh, they lived very prosperous lives, and they used that as springboards to pursue all sorts of unrighteousness. And so that was really the caution that we've run throughout this entire series. So we're going to be finishing the series with an overview of chapters 8 through 9 today. Uh, you might be thinking, well, what happened to chapter 7? Uh, if, you, if you just joined us, you might not know chapter 7 we actually did in week 1 because that was the best biographical uh, section for who Amos is. So you always can go back and, and listen to that on podcast or YouTube if you missed it. I want to go back in time uh, for an introduction as an illustration. Way, way back into the year 2020, right as the pandemic was at the height of its frenzy. Maybe you remember uh, there were decisions made to deem some businesses as essential and non-essential. You remember that? Well, practically what that meant was essential businesses stayed open and non-essential businesses kind of closed for a while. The problem is that when it's your business, when it's your job, it's pretty essential to you, right? So uh, I looked at a study that, that came out this April from the Federal Reserve that estimated uh, about 200,000 businesses closed directly related uh, to the, the essential, non-essential kind of pandemic stuff that was going on last spring and summer. 200,000 that would not have likely closed. There's always businesses that close every year. But these were businesses that they believe closed specifically because of what happened. And uh, Brother Carl and I were talking before, got on the line, he said, Bear County estimates about 250 uh, unique to our county here were businesses that closed because of being told to close, and they couldn't bring in their own money. The study that I read cited that restaurants were very hard hit, especially ones that couldn't do, they weren't really built for takeout, and then all of a sudden they were kind of forced to do takeout. Specifically, uh, hair salons, nail salons were disproportionately hit. You probably can go back and see all of us had really bad haircuts last summer because nobody was going to get their hair done, and uh, so that was disproportionately affecting hair and nail salons. Perhaps you know a business owner or an employee who lost their job, their livelihood. It's always difficult when someone loses the ability to feed themselves. Because that goes beyond just, my fridge went out and I lost all the stuff in my freezer. Well, that, you can get that back because you're still working. But when you lose the ability to continually feed yourself, well, that's when things get difficult. Uh, with the benefit of hindsight, we now look back, we look back at that time and we kind of know now how to live alongside COVID, although we're all praying it, it goes away. We, we understand that there are practices and precautions that we can take to sort of continue to live our lives. And I think looking back, we say, knowing what we know now, we didn't have to close those businesses. They didn't have to shut down and, and lose their livelihoods. It probably seems like overkill now. There's one final judgment to fall on Israel in the text that we're going to look at today in Amos. God, in an act of judgment, removes the ability of his people to feed themselves. 
Not with food, mind you, but with his very words, with the word of God. One of the signals of God's increased judgment on a people is the removal of his words from them. Israel underwent a famine of the word in their days before their destruction. And so we look at ourselves, and the encouragement to us is, may we not be a people who self-impose a famine of the word upon ourselves. You know, we live in the grocery store of God's riches. You ever think about that? You know what's really sad is if you starve in a grocery store. Why is that sad? Because it's so preventable. There's no need to, right? And yet, how many of us are spiritually starving and we live in the grocery store of God's riches? As we've said over and over in this series, we don't have to walk the path that Israel walked. We don't have to. That's why we read these stories and we say, well, look at what happened to them. And we don't say, well, let's just mirror what they did. We say, let's do something different than what they did. So we can learn from their error. We can remain faithful to our God, and we can refuse to starve in the grocery store. Before we look at God's word, pray with me and for me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you today needing your hand of blessing. As your word is read, God, we know that this time is completely yours. It's a time when you change us for the, for the better, that you cause repentance to happen in hearts. You draw us to yourself in worship. So, Lord, would you do it right now? Go beyond anything I've planned to say and make application in our hearts. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Amos 8, 1. Amos 8.1. I'm going to show you some selected passages from these final two chapters. As you know, we've been mostly covering everything, but we've had to make some editorial uh, bounce, bounce around moments. Um, you'll probably see the style changing a little bit in here as you, uh, I don't think I, I said it last week, but somewhere around chapter 6 and 7, the, the hermeneutical style changes in Amos from more of straight preaching to prophetic visions. And so we're, we're now in the prophetic vision portion, which you'll see right out of the gate. Uh, it's common for prophets to do that, to be kind of bouncing in and out of both of those things. So uh, most of Amos is preaching, but right here in chapter 8, we see a little bit of a vision. So if you'll look, Amos 8, we're going to look at 1 through 6. God's Word says, This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff of the wheat. We're going to pause there. We're going to move methodically here. So the first thing I want you to see today is the review of their sin. The review of the sin, really deep stuff. Uh, Amos is kind of like a prosecutor, if you've noticed uh, this series so far. He starts off with his opening lines, chapters 1 and 2. It's, it's kind of like those opening uh, uh, 
prosecutors in a case, in a courtroom, laying out the case, what's going to happen. Now we're at the end, and it's the review. It's the wrap-up. Here's, here's where we are, judge. And so we're at the, the final part of this. And so he's doing what a good teacher does. He is reviewing all of the charges given to Israel. So first, God shows them a basket of summer fruit. Now, you might read that like I did the very first time and thought, oh, wow, how nice. God got a little gift basket for him, a little parting gift. Got some papaya in there, some guava, some nectarines. Enjoy. No, that's not what this is. This is a Hebrew wordplay happening beneath the English reading. So the Hebrew word is it's a Hebrew word, casus, uh, is the word for fruit harvested at the end of the season. It got ripe quickly and it rotted quickly. So it's kind of like uh, you ever go to HEB and you get some bananas and they're kind of already turning a little bit yellow-brown? Well, guess what you, you know you're eating tonight? You, you, gotta, you got about two days to finish those bananas, right? Because as soon as they hit the house, acceleration of decay. So uh, these fruits that they're talking about were known for this. They were, they, they were ripe in the, in the vision, which means decay is coming. That's what was in, in, intended. It signaled the end of the harvest time. So on top of this, in verse 2, the end has come. You might see that little phrase in verse 2 was the Hebrew word kes. Okay, so there's a wordplay going on here. Basket of fruit is cases, and the end is case. So we don't see that in English, but it's not a sweet gift basket. It was a wordplay saying the end is near. Verse 4 begins with a final review of Israel's sins that caused the judgment of God to come. You're going to recognize these if you've been here with us during this series. Uh, They trampled on the needy and the poor. So we've talked about that. We know that God's law made routine provisions for the poor. You remember, we've we've gone over some of those. Uh, You know, leave the... Leave the edge of your field, leave the wheat on it on the edge of the field so, they can, so the poor can come by and get some. Uh, all sorts of little, little provisions in there. Well, they did none of those things. In fact, they turned it and they exploited the poor, which we'll see in a moment. Um, verse 5 and 6, examples. They kept the Sabbath on the surface. So remember a few weeks ago we talked about their false worship, how they kept going to the temple. They kept doing all the, cel- the celebration festivals. Well, they, now we know they kept the Sabbath. They, they continue to not work on the Sabbath. Okay, well, that sounds good. Well, not really, because what they did was they scammed their customers Monday, or, well, Sunday through Friday, uh, so that they could make up for what they would be losing in profit on the Saturday that they were closed. Now, if you remember, the whole point of the Sabbath was what? What's one word that summarizes Sabbath? Rest, right? That's good. The whole point of that is the rest of the body, rest of the mind, and there's a little built-in teachable lesson from God in there that you have to depend on him to provide for your needs, right? That's sort of built in there that if I work seven days a week, hard nose, grinding every day, you're kind of communicating to yourself that I make this happen. I grind, I hustle, I make this life. Well, God instituted that little Sabbath in there to say, just remember, you can't completely depend on yourself, That's a little hidden part of the Sabbath. No better example of this can be given when manna fell in the wilderness. Remember what happened when the manna fell in the wilderness? That little flaky bread, what do you call those things? Vanilla wafers, they fell from the sky. What day did the manna not fall? The Sabbath. What fell the day before? A double portion. A double portion fell the day before. And furthermore, this is how good God was. You could not stockpile Monday or Tuesday manna. 
You couldn't get, what happened? It would rot. Worms would, would pop up in it. You could only stockpile Friday manna to get you through the Sabbath. That's how God works. So, because uh, Israel was trying to keep the Sabbath in Amos' day, they're doing it, but the wealthy business owners and elites rigged the scales in the marketplace to skim extra money to give them an extra day's worth of wages. Now, that's not what you're supposed to do. They were scamming the poor under the justification that they needed this because the Sabbath was taking from them. The Sabbath is taking my Saturday money that I could be at the market, so I'm going to get it one way or another. How does that sound to God? I'm going to get mine one way or another. Just know that. Better be careful. The end of verse 5 says, They made the ephah small and the shekel great. Those are units of measure. We don't use those, but that's what they used at the time. They weighed the silver. So just picture a big old, big old scale in the marketplace, and you would weigh this, the silver that you brought to buy something against the item. And what they would do is they would rig the scale to make it seem like your money was less valuable. I call it selective inflation. It's basically what they did. They made your money less valuable at the point of purchase. And they targeted the poor when they did this. Verse 6 shows that the wealthy created slick ways to create indebtedness, causing the poor to be, uh, go into debt for cheap items. And we talked about this. A lot of folks are in debt. A lot of folks are in serious debt today. None of y'all are slaves. None of y'all are debt slaves. You may feel like it sometimes, but you're not debt slaves. They would put people into for real slavery over items as simple as a pair of sandals. And that's what was said directly in this text. And lastly, at the end of verse 6, just to add insult, they would sell the chaff to the poor. Y'all know what wheat is. Now, what's, what's the chaff? Is it the good part? It's the worthless part. It's the little wispy stuff that flies around in the, in the air after you, after you do the harvest, or it's that stuff that, it's like the sawdust of wheat. It just lays on the floor. And so what they would do is they would grab that stuff up, and they would, they would mix it in the wheat bag that they sold to the poor people. And they would make them pay more for less wheat, and they would get chaff mixed up in their wheat. It's pretty rough, huh? It's pretty bad. So this was just a review of reasons. God's just giving these right on the, out the door before he lays one final kaboom on them. He's just, just, just remember how we got here. Okay, so he does that. They were inauthentic shells of, of what they were supposed to be. They were facades of what God had intended them to be in his law. They were a greedy group of elites exploiting people. They were engaged in false worship, idolatrous worship, and everything they did was a sham. Therefore, judgment was coming in the form of the Assyrian armies that would come and destroy them. But there's another judgment that was coming, and it's one that we don't talk about very often because, again, most people just don't read Amos. But when I read this, this was the one, this is the verse that I read and said, ooh, I'm preaching Amos because this is so good. I can't believe I've never heard anybody preach this, these verses before. So powerful. I want to look at Amos 8, 11 through 12 with you now. And I want you to see, this is actually the final judgment of Amos. Amos 8.11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Okay, we've heard that before, right? Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Oh, that's different. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro. They shall seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. We saw the review of sin first. Number two, 
you're taking notes, we see the removal of their sustenance. The removal of their sustenance, that which sustains them. The sustaining force of a people would be removed by God. God did not remove their food or their water. He removed the bread of life and their living water. Now, I don't think we ought to overlook the placement of this in the book of Amos. We're at the final part. We're at the end. The last judgment oracle, really. Chapter 9 doesn't add any new judgments. It just tells how it's going to happen. It tells what's going to happen when these armies show up. What are they going to destroy? It deals with physically what's going to happen. So technically, this is the culminating judgment oracle against Israel. So are we to understand that this is the most severe judgment of them all? A famine of the word would be coming to the people who were supposed to be the primary recipients of God's word. Now, verse 11 specifically says that the famine would be in the hearing of the word. Okay? Now, uh, that's the recipient. So if you want to be the most literal reading of this, you could say that the judgment would be in the inability and unwillingness of the people to listen to God's word or to listen to the prophets. Either they could not or they would not. But I certainly think it takes two to tango. There are two sides to every coin. It is very likely that this is a double meaning, also indicating that God would cease to reveal himself to his people, meaning that he would cease speaking to his prophets. We know that that day did eventually come. Now, it happened in, in, in bursts, but we always talk at Christmas time, don't we, about the period of darkness after the last book of the Bible, Malachi, was written. Not a prophet spoke until John the Baptist crying in the wilderness. That was 300 years of silence. It happens. God would cease putting godly men in positions of leadership who would seek to reform his people. He would withdraw his influence of his voice in their lives until the natural consequences of having not heard the word of God would play out in their lives. Of all the judgments that we think about in our day, I don't think we really think about this. God judges a people's wickedness by sending a famine of the word in their day. Does that happen? Is that happening? I can think of three simple ways that this is happening right now. All three are interconnected. None of this is going to shock you. First is when the preaching in a land gets weaker, meaning the average preacher gets less biblically focused, less bold, less real-life application, less zealous for the glory of God, less gospel and sin and cross and empty tomb and faith and repentance. So let's get real. Let me ask you, is the average sermon today in 2021 weaker than it was 50 years ago? Talk to me now. Is it? Okay. Either we are entering or in a famine of the word, or we're at least in what Spurgeon called a downgrade. One of the two. Secondly, another way that this happens, not necessarily when the preacher himself initiates it. So that's, that was first. Sometimes the preacher just doesn't want to do it. You just want to talk about other things. Okay. But sometimes the people demand it, and the preacher's too weak to say no. Do you know that if I preached some of the sermons that I preached here, if we went back and just did a survey of countercultural, and I preached them at other churches in this city, I would be fired. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? 
That's for real. There are places that I could not preach freely what I say here. Or half the crowd just wouldn't come back. Don't forget what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.2. I love this verse. It's a preacher's favorite. It says this, 2 Timothy 4.3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's a famine of the word, isn't it? But who caused it? Who caused the second Timothy famine of the word? The listeners did. It says there's coming a time when they won't endure. They won't bear with sound teaching. That's literally healthy doctrine. They don't want it. People don't want it. In other words, there are gifted and godly men out there willing to preach sound doctrine, but their ears just just get a little itchy. They don't want to hear it. And so instead of listening to the hard preaching, they go find some lackey in a suit that'll say whatever. They go accumulate for themselves preachers that will preach according to their passions. They find a man or a woman who will say not what God says, but what they want to hear. Can you imagine doing that with your doctor? Coming out to tell you you have cancer or not, and you're sitting there and and so they come out, and they, the bad news, yep, you, you do have cancer, sir. And so you say, well, you know what? I'm going to seek a second opinion. Okay. Yes, sir, you have cancer. Well, you know what? I'm going to seek a third opinion. Well, you know what? I'm going to seek a fifth opinion. Well, you know what? And you keep going and going and going until you find that one doctor that'll just say, okay, fine, it's not cancer. How does that help you? How does that help you if you actually have cancer? You don't want the pilot who says, okay, the plane isn't really going down when it's going down. You don't want the structural engineer who says, yeah, this building foundation, sturdy, when it's not. You don't want that. Why would you want a preacher who refuses to tell you the truth of what the Bible says? It's not going to help you. It's not just this life. When it's not just this life that's hanging in the balance, it's your eternity. That's, That's bigger than a plane crash. That's how serious you should take the preaching that you sit under. I believe being a pastor is a harder job than, than people probably know. Now, I say that from, from me doing it. But I also think we ought to give pastors a lot of grace and understanding because it is a difficult job. But I want to equip you beyond here because reality check, you're not always going to be at this church. People in San Antonio move a lot. I've learned that since being here. It's not a big deal. Four years and gone. Okay, I've learned that from you guys. So what does that mean? It means I got to change the way I talk to you, understanding that I got to equip you for going to the next thing because I want to make sure you're ready for wherever God's sending you. So if you have a pastor that labors in the word, preaches the gospel, and it's obvious that he does, he deserves what the scriptures say, a double honor. He reserves your respect. However, you got to know there's a bunch of guys out there who have no business shepherding the flock of God. They really ought to be motivational speakers. They really ought to be social media influencers or salesmen or brand managers at a hip coffee place or a swanky nonprofit. But being a pastor requires a certain level of gravitas, a boldness to say things that people don't want to hear. So you got to be careful out there. This famine of the word might look like preachers refusing to preach. It might look like listeners refusing to listen. 
Let's add one more thing. Make your seat a little bit hot. How's that? It might look like people refusing to read their Bibles. Now, we might have to add a caveat here because we happen to live in a time when resources available to us would have been unthinkable to previous generations. We have Bibles up to our necks. Translation upon translation. Digital, hard copy, paperback, hardback, cloth overboard, calfskin, genuine leather, bonded leather, sugar-free, gluten-free, vegan. No, I'm just kidding. Seeing <laughs> if y'all are with me. Audio Bibles, that's how a lot of y'all listen. Commentaries and concordances and Bible dictionaries, podcasts, blogs and articles and conferences and seminaries and online education. It's staggering what we have. Staggering. And yet, this is why I say be careful that you don't starve in the grocery store. What good is it to have all of these resources if we don't take the time to just sit down and meditate on God's Word? Now, you may think that neglecting your Bible and your reading and prayer with God is a choice you make because you don't have the time. This passage in Amos tells a different story. It reminds us that it is actually a judgment from God. The less people know about who God is and what He has done and what He expects from us, the more our lives will reflect our fallen nature. The more susceptible we become to sin, the less prepared we are to wage war in this life. So let me just ask you bluntly. Is there a famine of the word in your life? Is it a self-imposed famine? Are you starving yourself of time spent with the Lord due to negligence? If so, you've brought a kind of judgment upon yourself. Now that sounds harsh, but that's what it is. You're not going to be better off, so therefore it's a judgment. You need the words of life. You need the word that brings living water. You live in a grocery store of the word. So don't starve yourself. I know life is busy. I know we live in an entertainment, video-driven, clickbait-driven, read-the-headline-and-react culture. I know all of that. I know that long-form reading and meditation are not part of the zeitgeist right now. We read blog articles, and if there are more than two scrolls of the finger, we move on. Oh, don't have time for this. And then we go read another blog, and another one-page blog, and another one-page blog. But, so we, you had time. You just you read five. But we can't afford to cut God's word. We can't afford to cut it. Because when we do, we cut off his influence in our life. Wouldn't it be absolutely crazy if we did to ourselves by casual negligence what God sent to Israel as their punishment of judgment? It's that significant. The word is your sustenance. It sustains you through life. So don't self-impose a famine of the word. Don't starve in the grocery store. We've seen a review of sin. We've seen the removal of sustenance. Now it's time for some good news, isn't it? Y'all like a little good news? Is that okay? Okay. We've been waiting eight long chapters for some bright lights and good news. Well, it's in chapter nine. You had to wait till the very end. Our third point today, number three, we're going to see the restoration of their salvation. The restoration of their salvation. So this text that we're going to read is such a dramatic departure from the tone of Amos that liberal scholars actually accuse it of being written by someone not Amos and added later, copy-paste. 
Uh, but it is not unusual for a prophetic book to have drastically different tones. Y'all studied Isaiah, right? First 40 chapters aren't that fun. Last 20 chapters are pretty nice. So this is not extremely uncommon for a prophet to do. So I want to add, uh, ask you to read with me Amos 9, verse 11 to the end. This is the final piece of Amos. Note the change in tone. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. And the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. What do you think about that ending? Some refreshing stuff, isn't it? This is the reinstatement of the prosperous covenant language. It's covenant reversal language. A clear picture of joy and plenty and reinstatement of everything that was stripped away. It's like Job. You had it all taken away, then one day it's coming back. Now, anytime there's a prophecy like this, you try to interpret it. There's a couple options on the table. Y'all that studied prophecy before, you know this is the way it goes. Some prophecies are fulfilled right there in the lifetime of the listener. Some prophecies are fulfilled when Israel returns after their captivity. Some prophecies are fulfilled in Christ and the church, and some are fulfilled in the recreated heaven and earth after the second coming of Christ. And it's your job to figure out which one's which. There you go. So just from reading this restoration passage, we had a massive help in this text because this is, this is quoted in the New Testament in a very important quotation. I'll get to that in a moment, but that's going to be our guide. So just from reading this restoration passage, we know that the judgment of God's people is not permanent. It's not going to be an extermination of his people. There would be a rebuilding and a restoring. So what is the fulfillment of this? What's the reverse of the famine of the word? How does this get reversed? Well, I believe that the answer to them and the answer to us is the same. If you're in a famine of the word, your reversal is really no different than Israel's reversal at this time. The ending of the famine of the word was best accomplished when the word took on flesh and dwelt among them. In the beginning was the word, and the word was the light among men, and the darkness did not overcome him. Jesus came to end the famine of the word. Chapter 8, which we just read, says that Amos' day in Samaria, people would be staggering around, doing what? In thirst, they staggered around, looking for the word, but they could not find it. That they shall faint for thirst, wandering, looking, but not finding in Samaria. Oh, it's no accident that Jesus went and sat down at a well in Samaria one day, spoke to a thirsty woman, and offered himself as living water to quench her thirst on the very site that Amos would have given this prophecy of restoration. Jesus ended the famine of the word in Samaria when he offered that woman living water. But guess what? It gets even better. In Amos 9.11, we read, 
In that day, I raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Now, let me just tell you, when that prophecy left the mouth of Amos, everybody would have thought that meant the physical rebuilding of that temple or some kind of united earthly rule of a king like David. Can I just tell you, Jesus did that too. It's no accident that Jesus spoke the words, you destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now what was he talking about? Was he talking about getting some rebar and cement and going back and building Herod's temple all over again? He was talking about his body. Jesus' body is the rebuilt temple and his church takes the glory of the Holy of Holies out from behind the curtain and to the nations. In fact, this Amos passage was quoted in the New Testament in one of the most important New Testament chapters, maybe the most, Acts 15. You should write that down for notes later. The Jerusalem Council of Acts 15. We preach this, it's been a year ago now, so I'll rehash it for you. The early church was quickly becoming more Gentile. Gentiles were coming to faith rapidly, and the Jewish founders of the church, the apostles, were trying to figure this out. They were trying to help people come to terms with working this out, that all these Gentiles are coming to faith. But they were all Jews, and they grew up knowing the law, and none of these Gentiles that were coming in late knew the law. So how's this happening? They're trying to figure all of this out, and they call a meeting. Like every good Baptist church, call a business meeting. And so Paul and Barnabas speak up. They say what they've been experiencing on the mission trail, Peter speaks up, what happened with Cornelius, tells the story, all supporting this idea that Gentiles can be Christians without becoming Jews first. Okay, so then, who speaks up last? James, there he is. James speaks up, quoting from Amos 9, giving the New Testament interpretation of Amos. And he says, my paraphrase, Christ has rebuilt the tent of David that was once followed. And Jesus sits atop the throne of God's people and is the true and better David who will never depart this throne. And because of his universal rule, all Gentiles who are called by his name may come and worship the Lord. Jerusalem Council, Acts 15. The key passage that guided this was Amos chapter 9. This is the fulfillment of Amos. This old, dilapidated, run-down embarrassment of a nation in Amos' day that called itself Israel, who had stopped up their ears and were living in a famine of the word, would one day be rebuilt and grown in a way beyond their wildest imagination, that their Messiah would come and replace the temple with his body, and his church would expand the walls of this temple to every continent, and that the word of God would become the best-selling book in the history of the world. And it's a beautiful thing to think about. So if you're in a famine of the word today, the solution for you is the same as it was for Israel. You need the bread of life. You need living water. You need a relationship with Jesus Christ. May we remain close to the source of our restoration in our life. He can turn your mourning into dancing. 
He can bring joy in the deepest of valleys. He can make the desolate mountains drip with sweet wine and singing fills your heart. So don't cut yourself off from the source of restoration of your soul. And don't starve in the grocery store. Pray with me.